Fifty years ago, Carl Menninger, the co-founder of the world-famous Menninger Clinic, wrote a book that shocked the psychiatric world. It was entitled, Whatever Became of Sin. Dr. Menninger had noticed that the word sin had disappeared from what he called social conversation and had been replaced by words like illness, disorder, dysfunction, syndrome, and so forth. He said it appeared as if we had officially stopped sinning. <laughs> well, obviously, we haven't. But we do live in a world where sin is seldom mentioned. You know, to call destructive or aberrant behavior sinful is deemed judgmental. So the word sin has been deleted. But sin is something that we've never wanted to talk about. In John's day, some apparently even went beyond avoiding the word to actually denying its existence. And John's response effectively answered the question, whatever became of sin? John made it absolutely clear that sin still exists and that it still needs to be acknowledged, forgiven, admitted, and avoided. And because sin does still exist, we still need Jesus. Let's take an honest look at sin this morning and see what John has to say about it, beginning with the fact that sin needs to be acknowledged. We're in 1 John, still in the first chapter. If we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. Now, when John uses the, the singular sin here, he's not referring to individual sins, but to sin as a principle, a fact of life. If we deny the existence of sin in the world and in our lives, he says, we are deceiving ourselves because it's here, whether we acknowledge it or not. But what is sin? Sin is, first and foremost, a failure to be what God intended for us to be. The word itself means to miss the mark. It's falling short of our God-given potential. But it's even more than that. It's rebellion against our Creator. It's refusal to live in obedience it's thinking we can set ourselves above those who should and do have authority over us. It's assuming that we have the right to take charge of our life, that we are accountable to no one. And we see no reason to think ourselves accountable to anyone because there's nothing to be accountable for. We're fine. We're okay. And we're getting better all the time. You know, we've been led to believe that through education and positive reinforcement, the inherent goodness of mankind will prevail and the society's problems will one day disappear. But God's word tells us there is a problem, a sin problem, 
that's not going to resolve itself and that must not be ignored. And the problem is a rebellious nature that expresses itself by making self number one. We looked at that in detail last year when we struggled through the rise and triumph of the modern self. You know, as long as we believe our perceived well-being is of prime importance, we're going to have problems. Problems within and problems without. Problems understanding why we do what we do and why we and others are treated the way we are. And problems relating to the one who really is number one. There is something wrong with us, all of us. And we inherited it from the first man who ever lived and rebelled against his creator. It's a sinful nature, a propensity to sin. And it's only after we've acknowledged this that we will be willing to do anything about it. Because we must acknowledge sin before we'll acknowledge that it needs to be forgiven. John continues, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. To confess our sins is to agree with God about them. That's what the word means in both Greek and English. Fess comes from the word to say. Con means with. To confess our sins is to agree with God that there are things in our life that need to be forgiven. Things that make us unfit for fellowship with a perfect God. Things that make us unrighteous. Things from which we need to be cleansed. If we never admit that, we'll never seek to be forgiven. And we will be without fellowship with God. We'll be out of fellowship with God forever. But if we agree with God about our condition and acknowledge the need to be forgiven, God will forgive us. If we accept what he's provided, he will cleanse us. That's the point of verse 9. If we confess our sins, God will forgive us and make it possible for us to live righteous lives. It is not, however, what some have read into it, into that passage, that our sins won't be forgiven unless we name them one by one, that we must confess every single sin we commit in order for it to be forgiven. I'll never forget a preacher who spoke at a minister's meeting years ago and told us that we should teach that sins committed during the day must be confessed before going to bed at night. Because if they aren't and someone dies with unconfessed sin, they'll go to hell. That's ludicrous. And it's appalling. Salvation is not dependent on keeping notes and making sure every sin is confessed before going to bed or during the day. 
You know, what if you're killed before you have a chance to confess your latest sin? What if you just forget one? No, no, no. The blood of Jesus cleanses us from all unrighteousness. From past sins, current sins, and even future sins. As long as we are in a trusting relationship with our Savior. As long as we acknowledge the need for him. The need for him to forgive us. Because we know we've sinned. John says, if we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar. And his word is not in us. In Romans 3.23, Paul wrote, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That means I have sinned and you have sinned. And to say otherwise is to make God a liar. But would anyone actually actually say they've never sinned, never fallen short of their potential? Probably not. However, many do find a way around admitting their sin by excusing it. You know, it's not my fault. He made me do it. It was just beyond my control. You know, we can always come up with an excuse for what we do or don't do. Or we might simply redefine sin and call it something else like Dr. Menninger noted. We might even try to sanctify it. You know, others gossip. We share prayer concerns. <laughs> Others have a temper. We show righteous indignation. Now, we don't like to admit that there is sin in our life or that the problems we face often stem from our own sins and sinful responses. I'll never forget a visit I had with a woman in the psychiatric unit of the hospital years ago. She had been a member of our church for a long time, but she never returned after my visit. I told her her problem stemmed, at least in part, from sin in her life and her sinful responses. And until she took ownership of her problems and took responsibility for them, she would be unable to address them. But she didn't want to hear that. I even offered to help her pray for forgiveness. But she did not want to admit she had sinned. And that's worse than we might think. Because not only will refusing to admit we have sinned keep us from seeking forgiveness, it's calling God a liar. Now, I doubt that anyone would have the audacity to call God a liar to his face but that's what we're doing if we refuse to admit we sin. We are sinful, and we do sin. That is not to say, however, that we should be content with a life of sin. That sin is our lot in life, and there's nothing we can do about it. 
Because sin can be avoided. John said, my little children, I am writing these things to you that you may not sin. John writes as a father to his beloved children in the faith. And he's writing to not only teach them and us about sin, but to also keep them from sinning. I'm writing these things to you that you may not sin. He'll even go so far as to say in chapter 3 that no one who is born of God practices sin because God's seed abides in him. We'll look at this in depth when we get there. But what's obvious is that sin should not be and does not have to be a part of our life. We can find victory over sin, not just the effects of sin, but sin itself. Through the resources made available to us in Christ, we can live relatively sinless lives. The devil doesn't make us do anything. Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. No temptation has overtaken you but such as is common to man. And God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation will provide the way of escape also that you may be able to endure it. We do not have to sin. It's possible for us to go days, maybe even years, and not actively sin. And that should be our goal. That is not to say, however, that we don't still fall short of the mark God has set for us. That we haven't sinned. Or that we don't still need what Jesus provides. Sin is still around us and in our lives, and because of it, we still need Jesus. If anyone confesses sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. Did you notice the way John said, if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father. He's included himself here. He's a sinner, just like the rest of us. And he has an advocate with the Father, just as we do. But what is an advocate? And why do we have one? You know, the word John used here is the same word he used in his gospel when speaking of the Holy Spirit. There, the New American Standard translated it as helper, but here as advocate. The word actually refers to one who is called to one's side, who stands beside us. Now, it was used in a court of justice to denote a legal assistant, counsel for the defense, a lawyer, an advocate who pleads our case and tries to convince a jury that we're innocent. 
Quite frankly, before further exploring the original meaning of the word just this week, I did equate an advocate before the Father with a lawyer who pleads our case before God. But now I think that's a faulty understanding of Jesus' role as our advocate. We shouldn't think of Jesus as a lawyer who has to convince God of anything, let alone to not condemn us. No, God doesn't want to condemn anyone. It's not his will that any should perish. And I was even wrong when I said Jesus would be there to remind the judge that the penalty for our sin had been paid. That Because God doesn't have to be reminded of anything. He knows the penalty has been paid. He's the one who sent his son to pay it. And he knows who's accepted the offer to have their sins forgiven. He knows who has accepted his son. You may have heard me say in the past that I like to picture Jesus standing beside me, his arm around me, telling God, it's okay, Dad. He's one of mine. I, I love that picture. I don't love it anymore. You know, God doesn't need to be told Jesus is my Savior. He already knows that. No, Jesus isn't going to be there to try to keep God from doing something or to even remind him that he doesn't have to do something in my case or your case. Jesus will simply be there so we don't have to stand alone before God. And the thought of standing before the judgment seat of God alone is frightening. That's why Jesus promised to be there, standing with us. The promise of his presence was given to comfort us, to reassure us, to make sure we understood that he will be there as our comforter which just happens to be another way to translate the Greek word parakletos. There will be no need to be afraid because Jesus has dealt with our sin. He is the propitiation for our sins. That's a big word. It simply means he's the one who satisfied the demands of justice. When he went to the cross, he satisfied the law's demand. He paid the penalty for sin. The law required that blood be spilt because of sin. Jesus paid that penalty for us. And he paid the penalty for the sin of all who will acknowledge they have sinned, who seek forgiveness of their sins through his sacrificial death, and who then strive to live lives that are free of sin. And again, living a sin-free life is possible. Because the one who will stand with us before the judgment seat of God will enable us to do it if we let him. You can be cleansed from every sin, from all unrighteousness. You can be made fit for eternal fellowship with your creator 
and with all who have likewise been cleansed of their sin. Just admit you need it. Do what he's told you to do to receive it and ask him to cleanse you from every sin and set you free.